Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dear Mrs. Thatcher, you have succeeded where we failed. Since the dispatch of the task force to the Falkland Islands, 266 Argentine military advisers have been withdrawn from Central America. Thank you. Yours in the democratic struggle, FDR, the Revolutionary Democratic Front of El Salvador. Uh, improbable fans of the Iron Lady. And what makes that even more extraordinary <laughs> is, is that the message came with a bunch of flowers. Um, it did. So, Dominic, I got that, of course, from uh, your brilliant book, um, Who Dares Wins, with its um, climactic account of the Falklands War. Uh, the first three episodes, uh, we've looked at the um, the causes of the war, early stages, uh, and in the final episode, we looked at the British land victory, um, the surrender of Port Stanley. What is the impact of this back in Britain? Uh, presumably for Mrs. Thatcher, it's, I mean, it's, you know, all her Christmases come at once. It is. It's absolutely, um, it's absolutely colossal. Whether it's transformative is a different question, but it definitely has. Well, so, so Dominic, on that, uh, yeah. I'm just going to say for the listeners that we have we have quite a lot of questions about the overall legacy. Yeah. So I'll ask those in the second half. But okay. if we could, just for now, let's just focus on the immediate impact. So she announces the uh, surrender nine o'clock in the evening um on whenever it is the um 14th of june uh she goes in and she says uh you know white flags are flying over port stanley and um there's a huge roar from the from from the both sides of the house of commons um because in those days of course the commons often you know the meetings went on long and that that they had ridiculous kind of timetable and also not televised is it not televised so it's only on the radio but it's also late at night michael foot the labor leader who we talked about earlier on he um he gives a very gracious tribute to her he says if the news is confirmed there'll be great congratulations from the house tomorrow to the british forces who've conducted themselves in this manner and if i may say so to the right honorable lady he congratulates her and that is actually you know, given Michael Foot was a splendid man. I think. Given his later, given her later, very controversial reputation, um, that's a that's a, a really interesting and illuminating moment. And actually, she he was an honourable man. He wasn't. Well, he was an honourable man. He 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 and I mean, we haven't talked about Jim Callahan in this series at all, Tom, which is a shocking oversight. Jim Callahan had also been her predecessor as prime minister. Had also been very very pro the war. And also pays a tribute to her. And generally, I think in the in the couple of days after the, the surrender, people sort of are queuing up to pay tribute to her. Would would it be fair to say Mrs. Thatcher was a famously um, divisive figure, and yeah. she almost seemed to thrive on the fact that people disliked her yeah, as well as supported her. On, yeah. Would it be fair to say that in the immediate aftermath of the Falklands victory, she she kind of briefly becomes a unifying figure? Would that be going too far? Uh, I think it may be going a tiny bit too far, but I do think this is the, the the unique moment in her political career where she is, I mean, probably the only exception is when the IRA tried to kill her in 1984, uh, is when she she gets a lot of praise from all sides. So I've got a quote here from the Daily Mirror. So the Daily Mirror had really, absolutely the voice of the Labour Party, 
um, had 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 led the attack on her economic policies. Front page after front page for the first part of her um, her first term, and it said, you know, now had things gone wrong, we would have been the had things gone wrong. It says we it would have been known as Thatcher's War, but now things have gone right. Nobody should deny her the credit. The scale of her triumph in both military and political terms is amazing. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing for a Labour, such a staunch Labour patron, to say about somebody whose economic policies have been so abrasive and so controversial. So it is a, a, a rare moment when, for once, as you say, and certainly across the political spectrum, with the exception of people on pretty much the far left, so Tony Benn, Ken Livingston, Jeremy Corbyn, people of, of that kind, Arthur Scargill, um, she's getting a lot, of, a lot of praise. And how long does it take... <laughs> For that to wear off. <laughs> For that to wear off. Yeah, a couple of days. <laughs> um, um, no, I think she's she has a bit of a honeymoon that probably lasts for another year or so, actually, um, probably until her re-election victory in the summer of 1983. Um, she definitely has been transformed in the public mind because she now is playing a role that she had never really played before. She has had sometimes sort of little stabs at playing it for example and bashing the europeans about the common market budget but she's now playing the role of the patriotic kind of national leader rather than the kind of the the, the nurse or the nanny administering yeah. medicine that you don't like but there's still i mean there's still that still grates on on people doesn't it because famously she wants to host a church service of celebration a kind of parade and and, and a, a church service in and saint paul's cathedral yes the Dean of St. Paul's is very much a, a man of the left. Yeah. Uh, and he proposes that the service be done half in English and half in Spanish <laughs> as a gesture of reconciliation with Argentina. And how does that go down with Mrs. Thatcher? Oh, of course. It's hilarious, actually. The discussions for this in the archives are brilliant because basically every churchman involved with it, you know, wants it to be utterly different from what she wants. So she wants a national service of basically of Thanksgiving. God is an Englishman. Yeah, the president of the Methodist Conference says, basically, I don't want the slightest hint of celebration of our victory. <laughs> and no military men can read any lessons or do anything like that, you know, read any bits of the Bible. The Catholic uh, Cardinal Basil Hume, he says he will not countenance any use of the word liberation um, of the Falklands in the service. And as you say, the Dean of St. Paul's, first of all, he wants half the service in Spanish. Mrs. Thatcher goes absolutely ballistic. And John Knott, our defence secretary, says, you know, the people who are inviting to this, the families of the dead, um, how are they going to react when they have to do the Lord's Prayer in Spanish? <laughs> I mean, obviously, they're not going to be very happy with that. So there's, they basically whittle down the Dean of St. Paul. So at the end, he's basically reduced to saying, could we possibly at least print the Lord's Prayer in Spanish in the, the order of service? And Mrs. Thatcher just writes in the, in the margin. <laughs> no! Why? <laughs> um, so it doesn't um, happen. Doesn't so it doesn't happen. happen. But then what happens is the 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 um the sermon is given by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie. So Robert Runcie, <laughs> I mean he he's another of these Yeah. I mean absolutely. he doesn't so he's another kind of thick glasses, he grey hair, balding. <laughs> and he's an absolute war hero, isn't he? He was called Killer. He was he was a tank commander in the war. For those people who who don't remember, and, and for overseas listeners who think we've just gone mad, um, Robert Runcie is like a man that a casting agency would supply if you said, "Give me a wet, weedy, feeble, ineffectual, ineffectual churchman." 
because he his voice, everything about him, can you know, exudes that. And yet, as you say, he'd been a tank commander in World War Two who was called Killer, yeah, because of his and he got record. the VC, didn't he? I mean, he was um, he was incredibly brave. The military man. cross, the military, military, cross. military cross again. I mean, he's very, leading very an brave man to to knock out three German gun emplacements under heavy fire, and yeah. he gives this sermon where he says. Um, He's thankful the war is over because it's impossible to be a Christian and not to long for peace. And he says all this sort of stuff. Um, the deaths of so many young men is nothing to celebrate. And of course, we talked in the previous episode about the Sun newspaper. So the Sun, the day after that, when they hear that, they go absolutely mad. And they call him the arch wimp of Canterbury. So this is Kelvin McKenzie, who has not taken out German gun emplacements or one <laughs> no the mc no 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 and the tory backbencher sir john biggs davison says it is revolting for cringing clergy to misuse st paul's to throw doubt upon the sacrifice of our fighting men i don't know if he's knocked out german gun emplacements <laughs> under heavy yeah. fire yeah but anyway yeah um but so, um, but but actually the response to his sermon was quite positive wasn't it from people who'd attended uh, yeah, I mean, Winnie Whitelaw wasn't too cross about it. No, she she makes a point of congratulating Rancy afterwards, and then it's later claimed as a bit of an urban myth. I think that she thought it was awful. I I think she was probably yeah, she was probably in an enervated state anyway because the arguments about whether there was going to be any Spanish. Yeah, but certainly her cabinet ministers, so those other people who had served in World War Two, thought it was great. Like Willie Whitelaw, her her sort of deputy, her home secretary, he says. I felt that he spoke exactly for me. His words were those of a soldier who understood what war is. So, and, and Mrs. Thatcher stands at the parade looking like the Queen. Yeah, so the parade is late in the year. They have a military parade through the city of London, organised by the city, and she basically takes the yeah takes the salute of the army. There's also a, a dinner or a lunch or something where she gets standing ovation from all the soldiers. I mean, she's she loves all this. Of she course. is yes. absolutely I mean, Elizabeth the first. Yeah, yeah, it's her dream. Of course. Well, I mean, why wouldn't you? Winston. I mean, yeah, she is Winston at this point. This is the thing. She was 13 years old, Tom, when World War II broke out. So very impressionable age. She worshipped Churchill. And she is absolutely playing the part of a sort of female Churchill who has defeated a fascist enemy. You know, all this sort of stuff. So absolutely she glories in this. Okay. So the electoral effect of this. Uh, okay. two, two questions. One yeah. from Stephen Clark, friend of the show. Yeah. Without the task force's liberation of the Falkland Islands, would Prime Minister Foote have been able to enact the policies listed in, quote unquote, the longest suicide note in history? So that's the Labour oh, like that manifesto that's of 1983. Yeah. And Benjamin Bitten. Bitten? Not the composer. Benjamin Bitten. That's okay. a joke, Dominic. Okay. It's, a, it's an amusing pun. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Benjamin. <laughs> Did the war cost the SDP Liberal Alliance, so that's the third party, the centrist party that briefly had looked as though it, it might yeah. even become the government. The Did it cost the SDP Liberal Alliance the 1983 general election and ensure at least 13 years of conservative rule? Or was that always going to happen, given the split in, split in the left of centre vote and the first past the post electoral system? So I suppose basically what both those um, questions are, are asking... They're, they're mutually exclusive questions, though, aren't they? Well, they, well, they are kind of, but they're also kind of not, because essentially what they're asking is, did the Falklands War make a Conservative victory in the 1983 election inevitable? Dep you know, I mean, maybe the SDP would have won, maybe Labour would have won, but the Conservatives would, de would, would the Conservatives definitely have lost had the Falklands War not happened? Mm. Okay, so I could spend hours talking about this, Tom. Well, you mustn't. Talk yeah. five uh, minutes. So the very short answer is, yes, it did make it inevitable, but it was probably going to happen anyway, the Conservative victory. So let's start with the Labour, 
the Labour counterfactual, Stephen Clark's counterfactual. Michael Foote, when he became, I mean, you have heaped praise on Michael Foote in this podcast, Tom. Michael Foote was a fantastically absurd person for the Labour Party to have chosen. <laughs> I know, but I just, I just, I the, always, I always loved Michael Foote as so the leader of their to stick party. Up for him, but yes, he his was. his poll ratings from the moment he became leader were absolutely abject. I mean, they were awful, and. Um, his party had been hideously divided in the course of 1981. I think we talked about this in our 1981 podcast, ripped apart by this sort of civil war between Tony Benn and Dennis Healy. And Foote struggled to impose his authority. The public never, ever showed the slightest sign of warming to him. Um, Labour, of course, went into the 1983 election very bitterly divided with the manifesto that a lot of its own MPs or candidates were uncomfortable with because they saw it as too left wing i don't think there's any real it's very hard to imagine a scenario in which labor win an overall majority in 1983 as for the sdp liberal alliance again how often do third parties rocket up in the polls in britain and then just come crashing back down to earth stymied by the electoral system but also because their support is so soft is a protest vote and i think that's absolutely i mean the whole history of the sdp liberal alliance suggests that that's the case now did it, did it, the, the argument is often, I said at the beginning, is it transformative? Because um, people often say, well, look, Thatcher was so unpopular before the war happened and the Tories were third in the polls and all this sort of stuff. But what that misses is the sort of nuance, which is that the Tories had reached their nadir at the end of 1981 when the economy was in the absolute doldrums, but they were actually recovering in the early months of 1982. And is that because the economy was recovering? Because the economy was turning up, because basically interest rates were beginning to come down, consumer spending was going up. The the worst the the the, the terrible recession was so that's largely three million unemployed. Well, I mean, it was still very high unemployment, but the worst of the recession was over. so. If you were in work, if you're one of the nine out of ten people in work, you were now having rising wages, and you were spending more money. So, there's a big investigation to this in an article in the British Journal of Political Science, very detailed, tons of graphs, which I won't bore everybody with. But they basically say what the Falklands War does is it accelerates a Tory recovery that probably would have happened anyway. It maybe it maybe accelerates it, maybe accentuates it, but I think that Mrs. Thatcher was always going to win the nineteen eighty three election. What obviously the war does is it it provides a very good explanation for people who hate her why mm. she why she did it, you know, because they she they they think she's a monster, and how on earth could the British people have voted for more of this awful medicine? And the war becomes the explanation. So. Um- before we go to a break, one last question from Simon Girdleston, looking at the um, the losers in the war. Yeah. Uh, and he asks, how important was the defeat in the Falklands in bringing down the Argentine military government the following year? Or was it likely to collapse anyway, given the economic problems? So that's basically the same question that we you've just answered um, in with regards. regard to Britain. Yeah. Applied to Argentina. Uh, well, that's a really interesting question, because most of those military regimes in South America were on a path towards democracy, but certainly by the end of the 1980s. So even Chile, actually, um, the Argentine's great rivals. Um, but it probably would have happened later. It, Galtieri has to go straight away. I mean, Galtieri, so what happens to Galtieri? He goes to prison. Yeah, so, so Galtieri resigns um, almost immediately, uh, within days. I mean, he's basically removed from power by an internal, you know, the, the military spent a lot of time feuding in there looking for scapegoats. So he then goes off to a sort of country estate, for the next 18 months, which actually isn't, isn't a bad outcome for him. You know, I don't know what he's doing, riding horses and drinking Mulbeck or something. And, um, but then in about 83, he is charged with human rights violations and he ends up, um, uh, 
there's a whole series of court cases. Uh, he ends up being stripped of his rank, and then he's ended up being pardoned by Carlos Menem at the end of the 1980s. And Carlos so, Menem's the guy with the huge massive cybers, massive cybers. Yeah. yeah. So basically, what happens is that Argentina. There were huge public protests. It's an abs- I mean, the military junta had put all their eggs in this basket, basically, that they thought... It seems amazing they didn't supply more support then. But they couldn't. Because they didn't I mean, have it. They, I think they really had it. Um, okay, fair enough. Uh, the British have knocked out part of Sport Standards Airfield. Yeah, they just don't have enough. all these extra supplies they can send. I mean, yeah. the amazing thing about the, 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 the Galtieri regime is that, I mean, I don't know whether one would like to think that there are parallels with Vladimir Putin or something. There probably aren't, but it'd be brilliant if there were. Because what they'd basically done was they just thought, you know, we'll go into the Falkland. All their energy had been put into getting the islands, but defending the islands had never, it had never really occurred to them that the British would try to take them back. Or I mean, and they sort of thought, well, the Americans will, will side with us. So we don't even need to do any planning for fighting off an invasion. So when the invasion happens, they're a bit rabbit in the headlines. I mean, there's a real sort of, they actually fight, some of them fight, particularly the pilots, fight very kind of valiantly. But it's a, an absolute losing cause. I mean, they were probably, you know, as long as, they, as long as luck didn't really go against the British, the Argentines were always in a real sort of uphill struggle. Okay. And so you, um, and Argentina does become, it, it, to repeat Simon's question, does it expedite the process? Yeah, it does speed it up. Absolutely speeds it up. Yeah, because the the, the hunter is completely and utterly discredited. This the, Their dream was to recapture the Falklands. They'd done it and they were absolutely campaigning on it. And then for everything to blow up as disastrously as it did, they've got nothing left. They've got nothing to, they, they stand for nothing. And that Borges quote that we, you began the whole series with, two bald men quarrelling over a comb, is that yeah. how it, it comes to be seen? that it was a pointless war in Argentina. Yeah. No, I don't, uh, certainly not on the kind of right of Argentine politics. I mean, I think a lot of people on the right would just say, uh, I mean, there'd be some people who would say they're still, they're still our islands. You know, we still want them back and one day we'll get them. I mean, maybe they will. Well, maybe they will. I mean, who knows? Well, um, so so that that takes us on to the broader perspective. Um, yeah. We've got, again, lots of questions about that. So let's take a break. And when we come back, um, we will finish off this series by looking at some of those broad brush questions. Okay. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you've enjoyed our retelling of the Falklands over these last three and a half episodes. Um, And we'll get back to the final part very shortly. But before we do that, I just wanted to let you know about a new series from our producers also on the Falklands War. It's called Battleground, and it's hosted by the military historian Saul David and the foreign correspondent Patrick Bishop, who was actually on board one of the British ships during the campaign. Basically, if our version has wet your whistle, but you prefer your history with more on the battles and maybe slightly fewer genius impersonations, then this is the pod for you. And every episode, they're going to be talking to someone who was at the heart of the action, from special forces commandos to military leaders to politicians. In the first episode, it's Lord Luce, the Foreign Office Minister responsible for the islands, who led the diplomatic effort before the invasion and was in the room for some of the dramatic decisions made by Mrs. Thatcher and others that we've talked about here on our series. Search for Battleground, the Falklands War, wherever you get your podcasts, or there's a link in the episode description. Hello, welcome back to the final part of our Falklands War epic. Uh, Dominic, um, we're going to look, pull the camera back now, look at... Um, well, basically, I mean, and this is quite an important question, bearing in mind we've spent, you know, hours almost uh, discussing hours. this. We have spent um, hours, Tom. We've been here actually, all day. So did it actually matter? Um, you know, does it have any kind of broad yeah. significance? So for starters, from Liam CJ97, uh, what significance, if any, did the Falklands War have regarding the broader Cold War context in which it took place? So specifically the Cold War. The Cold War, I think it's... Um... Because it's it's two, you know, in terms of the Cold War, it's two yeah. allies fighting with one another, which is why it was so difficult for the a, Americans. A funny thing about the Cold War context is that um, much of the British public debate during the early weeks of the war among the public themselves has a Cold War dimension. So the number of people who are recorded in mass... Because mass observation is going at this point which is this sort of project where people send in, you can just still do it now, actually. It's a brilliant historical project and all listeners should do it. You send in, you know, you you write about what's going on in your Your life takes and your hot. Yeah. And what's going on, what you've heard people say and how you're like, so it's a resource for future historians and the mass observers sometimes record people saying we have to go in because the Russians will go in next. Or they say, if we don't fight to to get the Falklands back now, the Russians will be in the Isle of Wight tomorrow yeah. or the Channel Islands. So so people see it in that context. I think the Russians 
they are impressed with the British fighting spirit and with Mrs. Thatcher. But also think, slightly contemptuous of it as a, an imperialist. No, uh, well, they, they're, they're sort of obviously in public, they say it's an imperialist venture and all this sort of stuff. But I think they think it's, um, if they think about it at all, they think, you know, the British actually fought much more, show much more spirit than we would expect. And they're, they're not to be taken lightly. And certainly the, you know, the other Western allies, so the parts of the Western allies, like say France, Canada, and so on. I mean, they bombard Mrs. Thatcher with messages, private messages afterwards saying, what an amazing achievement. You know, you, you've done so well. We really admire what you've done, all this sort of stuff. But actually in terms of did it affect the outcome of the Cold War? No, not at all. Not at I all. Mean, okay. Joke. Okay. Is is there a case to be made for its broader significance then in, in other terms? Yeah. For three, so when we started the podcast in the very first episode, we talked about three different places, three different groups of people the Falkland Islands, Argentina, and Britain. And it mattered enormously for all three. So let's do Argentina first. I mean, we mm-hmm. talked about it at the end of the last episode. For Argentina, it is the nail in the coffin of the, of the Junta. They probably would have fallen at some point anyway because of the general trend towards democratization in Latin America. But it speeded that up, it utterly discredited. Um, the military regime. Um, so it obviously had an immediate impact on Argentine politics. It's it's a it's a colossal moment in recent I mean, how many wars has Argentina fought in the last hundred or hundred and fifty years? Not that many. So it's a massive moment for them. Um for the Falkland Islanders, now this is where the Borges analogy, I think, falls down. The two bald men fighting over a comb, because the Falkland Islanders are not a comb. I mean, they would say we're a community. Now there are some people there were some people around Mrs. Thatcher who said, bribe them, just pay them. There. So that's Alan Waters. Alan Waters. Talked yeah. about in the first episode. Pay them to move, you know. Um, I mean, there were sort of people in the... Because cl- it's so expensive to look after. Because it's too expensive right. to look after them. And it's too expensive to fight to get them back. Just in the same way that there were sort of letter writers to The Guardian in 1982 who said, who cares what they think? You know, bring them back, give them farms in Scotland or something. I think that's a pretty odd position to take that the, everyone gets self-determination except the Falkland Islanders. I mean, clearly the Falkland Islanders did not want to mm. be part of Argentina. They didn't want the Argentine military regime in charge of them. It seems, I mean, they'd been invaded. Um, it, it seems odd to say that you wouldn't, that, that their well, interests are yeah. insignificant. And, and to reiterate, in terms of um, fashioning a war that makes Britain look as good as possible, the Falklands War is about as as good as it gets because, as you said, there are that you know there are no people who are being oppressed by the Falkland Islanders. They've no. they've lived there for generation after generation. Um, the people who invade are tiny, kind of torturers. They're fascists. It's insofar as a, a British war can shed the kind of imperial baggage. Yeah, the Falklands War is actually as unimperial as or at least as uncolonial as you as you like well, to get defending a, a british colonial territory well, let's get to i mean two people there are two objections that might be made to what you just said tom or to what to, i mean i agree with you but there are two objections what objection number one might be well the islands should be argentine anyway because they were spanish before that but it's very telling that neither britain nor argentina has ever referred the case really gone for referring the case to an international court or, uh, spain has never well, Spain. Maybe Spain? Maybe. Or indeed France. Or indeed French. I mean, they all. And the reason that the British and the Argentines haven't done it is because neither is completely convinced of the. That of, they'd win. That they'd win. Um, but, but equally, it just it does seem weird to. I mean, 
the the islands nobody there speaks they don't speak spanish they don't have cultural links with argentina the argentine claim which is based on a kind of pro- propinquity i suppose that they're five only 500 miles away is 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 pure nationalism really i mean it's pure nationalism so that would be my counter to the 1833 they should have been always argentine argument the other argument is that um, oh the british are just imperialists it's a legacy of empire and Britain shouldn't have it. But of course, the problem with that is, well, if, if the British are just imperialists and the Falklands is just a colonial relic, what's Argentina? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, all the Argentines have Spanish or Italian. They don't have indigenous, Latin, you know, yeah. um, sort of pre-Columban conquest uh, surnames. They're all Spanish and Italian European surnames because they all have Spanish and Italian heritage. Oh, indeed. Or German or Welsh or... No, fair else. point. Well made. Well, uh, lo- lots of Welsh, aren't there? In Patagonia. Yeah. Patagonia, yeah. With the dinosaurs. Maybe the Welsh. So dinosaurs and Welsh people. Maybe the, Fal- the Falklands should be a colony of a greater Welsh empire. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what distracted me, Tom, there, was there's a, a series of books. Have you ever read a series of books by a guy called Malcolm Price? No. But they're called Aberystwyth Mon Amour, Last Tango and Aberystwyth, and so on. No. They're sort of... Noir fiction set in Aberystwyth in uh, Wales, <laughs> really, and they're in a weird clear par- in the title. They're in a weird parallel universe <laughs> where where Wales had a colony in um in where Argentina was Welsh. Oh right, and, and, oh, I must um, read it. Yeah, it's very good. They're very good. Um, anyway, say so like like Prince Madoc, who is supposed to have colonised North America in the Middle Ages. Is that Wales. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's good. So there there are there are scholars who think that there are traces of the Welsh language in. Various Native American. I'm I'm dubious about that. Yeah, I, I, I let's say the scholarly consensus isn't entirely behind that okay, argument, but it but it's it's there anyway. Listen, we are, again that's we're a massive off. tangent. Yeah, it is. It is. So here here is um a, a question from Diogo Mogado again, very much a friend of the show. Um, mm-hmm. Dominic suggested that had Britain lost the war, it wouldn't think of itself as a major world power, and hence Brexit would never have happened. So what I love about summed that. up your, yeah. your 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 bre- your hot Brexit take. He is familiar with my thesis. He is familiar with my thesis. Yes. So, why it matters for Britain, I think, is not because it ensures Mrs. Thatcher another term, because I think she'd have had that anyway. Why I think it really matters for Britain is that, really, since Suez. So you mentioned Suez when we were talking about the Commons meeting in the aftermath of the Argentine invasion, and you were putting up the weren't you putting up the net in your garden? That's right. Yeah, the cricket net. Yeah. Um, and this being a great moment of national humiliation. And the funny thing about that was that was absolutely the kind of thing that you'd expect to happen in Britain, because in many ways, the story of the last few decades had been one of perceived national humiliation. So the loss of, of, of all the different bits of empire, Union Jacks coming around in places across the world, the, the horrible saga of Northern Ireland, um, which is a terrible sort of stain on Britain's international reputation in the 70s and 80s, rightly or wrongly. Uh, but also economic sort of embarrassments, the devaluation of the pound, having to get a bailout from the International Monetary Fund, all these kinds of things. This sort of perception of Britain as the sick man of Europe. So when the Falklands War happens, to me, I think that sort of sets the seal on all that. And that moment that you ventriloquise so splendidly where Sir Henry Leach says to Mrs. Mm-hmm. Thatcher, if we don't fight, we shall be living in an entirely different country. Shall I do it I mean, again? Uh, if you Do you want Would to? You- yeah, would you like to hear it again? I, th- I mean, I think I, I think the listeners would have found. I can it only moving. guess what the listeners will be thinking when they come to listen to this, but maybe they will want it. Again. Yeah, let's let's reprise it. Go on then. Can we do it? Yes, we can, Prime Minister. And though it is not my business to say so, we must. For if we do not, 
or if we pussyfoot in our actions and do not achieve complete success, in another few months we shall be living in a totally different country whose word will count for little. Now, you see, Tom, I think you delivered it this time with more feeling. I did. Because. I did, because we've, we've reached the end. And well, so now I'm before I'm you didn't fi- know what was going to happen. No, now I'm aflame with patriotic zeal. Yeah, because you didn't know how the it was going to end. The Union Jack is fluttering over my head as oh, I recite that. Extraordinary yes. scenes no. at Brixton. <laughs> yes. So, so, yes, so Henry Leach's arguments that basically it's a turning point. He says, if we don't do this, um, I think is, is an interesting one. What if they hadn't done it? What if they had allowed you know, the Argentines, as it were, to get away with it? Or what if they had sent the task force and... they had blown out of the sea. And be blown out of the sea. What would have happened then? Well, irrespective of the political impact, I think psychologically what that would have done was it, it would have confirmed the narrative that was so entrenched in the 1970s of inevitable British decline, of Britain as the kind of market leader in a kind of, in being a failing Western democracy. Yeah. And also, I suppose, a spe- you know, confined to the European theatre. Because yeah. oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know the whole sending ships across the across the ocean. But also Diogo Morgado's argument, which is that um, well, I think it's your argument, isn't it? That he's quoting. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, so the thing about Brexit, and and the thing about Europe specifically, Britain had gone into Europe in 1973, and and there really, I mean, there had been a bit of the element of like we're all friends now after the war, let's join hands, kind of come by ya, but probably a stronger sense in that debate was we were an empire and we're not anymore so we have to kind of find a new lifeboat to jump into um so this sort of people had gone into europe quite the public polls show people a lot of people gone into europe quite grudgingly as a sort of a strategy born of a perceived sense of failure Mm. and what you absolutely see everywhere in the summer of 1982 you see it in the press you see it in people's diaries you see it in on tv you know, ITV has this huge night of spectacular with all Roger Moore and, I don't know, Shawadi Wadi or whatever. And from that point on, Brexit was inevitable. <laughs> but, but, but there's this sort of sense, you know, Britain is, has, has, has changed. Britain has become a different kind of, of country. And Mrs. Thatcher, absolutely, I'm just trying to dig out the, um, well, here's a good example. So this is from the, the, the Daily Express. The columnist who wrote this, I met him after I'd published the book and he said, um, he was delighted that I dug out his column and, and featured it. It's a guy called Peter Mackay. He wrote a column called The Crowning Glory. And this is after Princess Diana gave birth a week after the end of the Falklands War to Prince William. What times we live in, the excitement surrounding a royal birth, the famous victory in the Falklands, a nation which, according to all recent opinion polls, exults in a common aim. There cannot have been a June like this for 30 years. Indeed, since June 1953, the Queen's coronation coinciding with the conquering of Everest and the headline over both events, which said all this and Everest too. He goes on, he says, we'll have to wait for a long time to see the likes of this summer and the excitement of these days, days in which we seem incapable of defeat. And that kind of stuff, which Mrs. Thatcher does too, she goes to Cheltenham Racecourse. And she gives this speech saying, um, we have ceased to be a nation in in retreat. We have found ourselves again in the Falklands, the spirit of the South Atlantic, as she calls it. Enoch Powell, who, you know, people sometimes see as one of the sort of the prophets of Thatcherism. um, He wrote in these, he said, a change has come about in Britain. We are ourselves again. 
And that kind of, I mean, that was the title, as you know, Tom, of the final chapter of my book on this, We Are Ourselves Again. Because I think among people of that okay. persuasion, yeah. okay. not everybody, no, but people of that persuasion, okay. there's this sense of, oh, thank God, we've thrown off the last few decades. We're an exceptional country with an, uh, an unrivaled past and a unique destiny. And the whole, you know, now the European project gets in the way of that. Despite the fact, of course, as we know, the French helped us, yeah. the Chileans helped us, the United States helped us. We so, didn't do it all alone. But the alone myth becomes absolutely embedded from this point onwards. I can say. I just, I mean, two possible ob- objections to that. Yeah, go for it. One is that between the Falklands and the Brexit vote, you mm-hmm. have the Iraq war in which Britain is, you know, a junior player in a disastrous war. Yeah. Uh, does that not kind of, and, and again, is revisiting a, a kind of a scene of, of the colonial past in the, in the form of Iraq? Yeah, but I don't think the Iraq war, I mean. Does that, does that not kind of have a knock on? I mean, I, th- I think it, it, it definitely does. Does it change um, the way people think about Britain? I think it changes. Well, I, th- I think it, it changes the way people think about Tony Blair, your pal Tony Blair, but it doesn't change well, the way. I mean, support, so support for the, you, you said that support for the Falkland, you know, the Falklands war in the wake of the war was kind of 80%, 80, yes. 20%. Um, you know, the Brexit vote was 52, 48. So that implies that there's been quite a decline in the sense of Britain as a go it alone, have a go hero kind of <laughs> yeah. country. And I would say that, that um, the experience of Britain going to war in distant, you know, out, non-european theaters hasn't been a particularly glorious one since the falklands yeah that's true i mean obviously so iraq and afghanistan and so on um but i don't think those conflicts are as so what the falklands i think is is it's the sort of missing link in a way between them the it, 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 the, the world war ii myth if you like mm. nation standing alone summer of 1940 churchill all that i mean when i say myth i don't mean it's invented but i mean it's taken on the the quality yeah, of the mythic myth. mythic resonance mythic resonance it's i think it's the it's the sort of the thread the staging post those are two different metaphors anyway it's one of them <laughs> um, between 1940 and 2016 so this idea that Britain c- can do things, that it's refound itself, the flying of the flag, the patriotic populism. I mean, having spent far too long reading kind of tabloid newspapers from the 1960s and 1970s, there's not much of that patriotic populism in the 60s and 70s. There's actually a, a much wider sense of kind of defeatism, constant publishing of league tables in which Britain's at the bottom. And after 1982, the speed with which that vanishes from the national discourse is extraordinary. Um, and I think, okay, you can't draw, it's not a simple direct line between 1982 and 2016, but if 1982 had worked out differently, I mean, yeah. just think what ammunition that would have been for the Remain campaign. Yeah, I'm sli- I guess I'm slightly playing devil's advocate here. But also I think what it does more psychologically, I think the Falklands War rekindled, I mean, particularly in all the stuff we talked about with the sun, the sort of, you know, the tabloids, if you want to call it jingoism, call it jingoism. Um, that feels very 18th century to me. It's very roast beef of old England. Completely. You know. So that's so that's my other question. Yeah. Is that is that um, reading about it now? There's an awful lot of stuff about kith and kin, uh, and and about the kind of the venerable. You know, it's it's a the the the, the tradition of Drake. It, it's a heroic one. Um, yeah. The Royal Navy. Uh, Britannia ruling the waves. Yeah. In a, in a way that I think 
you know, there are, there are clearly, you know, that still has a, a, a lot a resonance for lots of people in Britain. But one of the things that's striking about it is that everybody involved in, you know, that we've talked about in this uh, in, in this series is is white, and mm-hmm. it it kind of draws attention to to how much change there's been in the ethnic makeup of Britain since 1982 to now, and that must complicate the narrative of. Britain's engagement overseas and the legacy of Britain as a great power. But I don't think, think it, but I don't think it would, I don't think it complicates it as much as if, um, as if the Argentines had, I mean, the Argentines are. I agree because the Argentines are, are the ideal villains. Yeah. They're the descendants this. of Spanish and Italian immigrants. So they're not, you know, they're not an indigenous yeah. black population. Now that would complicate it enormously. So if the Falklands war had been fought again, so for example, maybe a parallel with the Falklands is, um, the Indian annexation of Goa. Uh, so Goa would have been a Portuguese colony. Mm-hmm. And, and India basically... So that's in the 60s, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly, in the 60s. India annexes it. There's nothing Portugal can do. And from that point on was Goa is Indian. Now, had that been the analogous kind of situation, in other words, had it been a post-colonial country um, with a kind of indigenous population who had seen themselves as being oppressed by colonial overlords, taking back something that has a... a, a, a an ethnic population not unlike their own against their white oppressors, then the Falklands War would obviously look very different today. But it's not like that, is it? Yes, I, I, I agree with all that. I just think that, um, you know, with 80% enthusiasm for the Falklands War in 1982 and Union Jacks everywhere, Hearts of Oak, uh, yeah, Drake, Nelson, um, you could say that perhaps it was the last kind of guiltless hurrah for a kind of tradition of exultant patriotism. And, yeah. and that, if, you know, if you want to talk about Brexit, Brexit perhaps f- for lots of people was a chance to express that again in a way that they felt had, had been made uh, Had been denied difficult. them in the intervening period. Had been period. denied them in yeah. the intervening period. And, and perhaps that's why it was so polarising. Yeah, possibly, Tom. I, I mean, I, I, I think they, I think I'm, on the other I'm hand, slightly I th- thinking on my feet here. But. Yeah, but I think the implication of what you're saying, though, is that the sort of ethnic minority population of Britain, the non-white population, would be among the, you know, they would be swelling the ranks of the twenty percent. Um, and I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I think yeah, there'd, be not, of, yeah. there'd be an awful lot of black. Well, I know that yeah, that lots 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 supported Brexit as well. And uh, also, let's imagine imagine a, imagine a similar situation. Imagine Argentina was currently run by a um, a hard right dictatorship that that applied electrodes to the genitals of poets, and they invaded the Falkland Islands tomorrow. Um, what would public opinion be like in Britain? I mean. I don't think that's a really be, interesting question. I don't think it would be fifty-two forty-eight. I think it would be more like the eighty twenty. Well, I suppose the 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 Ukraine, the the general support for Ukraine. Yeah, actually. and I think the twenty would be the same people. By the way, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Drabble, Polly Toynbee, <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. a lot of maybe a lot of our listeners um, would be among the twenty. I'm not. I don't want to completely stereotype the twenty. But I think the the proportion that would be the sort of retake the islands, because I don't think I mean you, you talked about it as a colonial war. Now, when we think about post war colonial wars, it was a colonial war because this was a, this was a, a, a colony. But but Tom, when we talk about colonial wars, we generally think about two kinds of war. So one is a war where just the the occupying power 
is trying to suppress a nationalist uprising. So that would be, you know, the French in Algeria. Well, I mean, actually, no, that's a different kind. The other is where you're backing settlers against yeah. an indigenous population. So, so one is very straightforward. It's occupiers and occupied, and the other, the settlers involved. The Falklands is not quite like either of those things because there I is agree. no... So to keep saying that it's the perfect colonial war because none of those complexities are involved in it. Yeah, but that but makes I, it different I, from almost any other colonial war. I, I, can, I, I agree, but I do also think that there's that attitudes to the empire have... And I yeah. know that this, you know, Mrs. Thatcher wasn't interested in the empire. The Falklands War wasn't about trying to recreate the empire. I understand that. But it was nevertheless a colonial war. And I, I do think that attitudes to the empire have become more complicated. Of course they have. Now, what's really interesting is, so the, the phrase that's sometimes used with the Falklands War is the empire strikes back, most famously by Newsweek magazine. In a, yeah, in so, a so it's the task force setting off. As the task force. Yeah, yeah. But the first use of it that I found when I wrote my book was among soldiers themselves. They have it written on a kind of blanket that they're hanging over the side of one of the ships as they leave. So it's being generated, as it were, from below. And it's among the, the troops, the young men in their early 20s, obviously because they're the target audience for Star Wars. They've seen the film yeah, so just you know, a, year, a year or two earlier. Yeah. Um, how much is this a, a war of nostalgia for empire? I don't think it is about nostalgia for empire. I think it's nostalgia. No, for, I don't think it's. An, I don't think it's. A, a, it's a, nostalgia. A war for fact, the, Thomas, it's it, nostalgia for the Second World War. I think. Yeah, but I, no, I think it's more, even more than that. I think it's nostalgia for Britain ruling the waves. I think it's uh, Hearts of Oak. It's yeah. um, Nelson. It's 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 nostalgia for a world in which. Britain uncomplicatedly rules the waves. It's not a nostalgia for the implications of why Britain rules the waves. Well, let me just I read think, you this. I think it, it's it's she sea shanties and well, well Drake and all that kind of, of stuff. Of course, let me just read you a couple of things. So one is, um, let's go back to uh, the fifth of April. So that's when the task force leaves from Portsmouth. The Daily Mail had a bloke there uh, who interviews one of them at crowd. Guy in the crowd is called Tommy Mallon. He is a veteran of World War One, and this is what he says: He says, "I thought England was done for, spineless, a doormat for the world. I'd pass the war memorials or see Nelson's victory, and I'd wonder what it had all been for. But I was wrong, thank God. We're still a proud country, and we'll still protect our own." So that's um, right. So it's the, but it's the protecting our own. Yeah, well, that obviously. So I think that that has become more complicated. Yes, I think that's that's fair enough. Because what he means by our own is people from like Britain us. who went out in the nineteenth century. Uh, I think, I think. Well, I think so. Jonathan Raven had, who we talked about, in one, uh, who had this brilliant book um, uh, yeah. about um, um, sailing around the, the coast of, of Britain. Um, brilliant travel writer. He says at one point, the thing about the Falkland Islanders is they look like Britons from the 1950s. I mean, yes. you write Tom, he means white Britons because yeah. they speak and they sound and they look physically because of the way they're dressed, because they're old fashioned, because their stuff's having to be imported. Well, it was, it was all that kind of, you know, the, uh, the, the archers stuff that, that we, that you were talking about when the, when the British troops land. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's like they, you know, have leads been relegated? And yeah, you've it's like the troops time, have landed you, in an episode of All Creatures Great and Small. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think there's, I mean, there's a writer called Anthony Barnett who's actually a very, very big Remainer and has written tons of stuff. Yes, I've, I've people's um, people's vote, all this sort of business. I've shared a taxi with him. There you go. Across he's, Greece, he's the husband of Judith Heron, isn't he? The he is, Byzantine yes. historian. Yeah. Yep. So he wrote a really, really. I mean, I don't personally 
necessarily agree with him, but I find it really insightful and interesting. He wrote a really good, I can't remember, it was an essay or a book um, in the immediate aftermath of the Falklands War, in which he says, I mean, he noticed that something had changed, and he calls it Churchillism. And he says, the whole thing is drenched in this, this obsessive nostalgia for the summer of 1940, uh, but also for D-Day, obviously, the idea of standing alone, the idea of an island people, the idea of fascists, the national, the prime minister who rises to the moment, the standing for freedom, that the, we're just a little people, you know, our, little, our men with their backpacks yomping across the moors. Bobble hats. All, all of this. Yeah. All of that stuff. And yeah. the naval, the naval stuff is, a, you know, is a huge element of that because it's so deeply rooted in Britain's self-image. But I think a lot of that iconography obviously was used in 2016. And completely. Even completely. among people who didn't vote to leave the EU, I think it still has a huge pull, doesn't it? I mean, uh, yes, but I, th- I think it also has a huge repulsion effect. I think lots of people are a lot, you know, as Jonathan Rabin was, uh, yeah, find it unsettling and frightening and disturbing. Well, yeah, I mean- uh, and, and I think that that is what made Brexit and the um, the debate that followed Brexit. So visceral on both sides, I think. So Alan Bennett, the playwright, uh, who's, of course, another great Remainer, writes uh, an annual big diary column for the London Review of Books. Um, He wrote a piece saying, you know, I don't, after this uh, result. After the Falklands. Well, wait, after this result, I don't feel English. You know, there are people singing Rule Britannia, these kind of vulgar people. Um, I don't, I, I feel like everything I believed in has been turned on its head. And he's not talking about the Brexit. He's talking about the Falklands War. But he basically writes the same column again. It's right. only 16. Okay. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, all right. So, I think you have completely convinced me that the Falklands reverberate into the present. Okay. Maybe it doesn't cause Brexit, uh, but 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 there are. But it amplifies it, uh, trends that it, culminate in Brexit. I don't think you can talk. I, th- I think the two are on the, in the. Yeah, exactly. They're on the same continuum. I don't know. Yeah. What, okay. I've, I've mixed metaphors on this now so many times. And do you think that, that justifies. Do you think that justifies for enormously long episodes on it definitely i think it does yeah, but definitely. i think a lot of people tom will be will be they'll be keen maybe not to hear more about the falklands war but possibly to read more. but to read but do you not think i think they would i'm gonna so i'm gonna recommend it again your your book on this who dares wins britain 1979 to 1982 and i, I was talking about this with sadie my wife we we went to a very peculiar hotel in um in, in cornwall it was a special offer and so we, we took, foolishly took it up it was a terrible hotel oh, no. kind of faulty towers-esque and it just rained solidly uh, and so we stayed in our awful damp hotel room but i had your book which is about seven thousand pages <laughs> and I, I, honestly dominic it was one of the great reading experiences of my oh, life Tom. i think i live tweeted it so you were able to tell how much i was enjoying yeah. it and and the the, the falklands war is just the, there are four chapters aren't there it's the most brilliant climax i think it's your one of your, the great passages of uh, contemporary history. Oh, um, Tom, you're too kind. I really. What have I, I really done to deserve that. this? But, but the rest, the rest of the book is fabulous as well. But the the the, the Falklands, it's absolutely bravura writing. So uh, highly, highly recommend it. Dominic, thanks so much. Thank um, you, Tom. Thank you for letting you me have, have my head. No, absolute pleasure. Uh, I, I've been looking forward to it <laughs> ever since we started this podcast. And we remember, I was kind of saying, you know, I hope we're still going. Yeah, um, and incredibly. For the anniversary, and incredibly, we are. So, uh, thanks very much for listening. If you've made it this far, <laughs> all four of you. Um, <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.